Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 24. At first glance, this chapter seems to be a bit of a hodgepodge. We have nine verses on the lamp and the showbread, and then 14 verses about a guy who committed blasphemy and was subsequently stoned. How in the world does that all go together? Actually, the arrangement may be more sensible and harmonious than may first appear. Michael Morales, for example, makes a strong case that the first nine verses should be understood as portraying in a visual, symbolic sense the overall purpose and goal of the tabernacle. He says, Once more, I suggest that the goal of the tabernacle, in harmony with that of the cosmos, is portrayed symbolically in Leviticus 24, 1-9. We've already noted the correspondences between the lamps of the menorah and those of the cosmos, along with the Sabbath Tamid and the seventh day. In short, all the necessary elements of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 are found in Leviticus 24, 1 to 9, for the sake of presenting a cultic picture of Israel's basking in the renewing light of God's Sabbath day presence, a beautiful theological symbol for the significance of the tabernacle cultus as it has unfolded in Leviticus, closed quote. So in a sense, the tabernacle represents a recreation narrative. It is undoing on a small scale initially the effect and trauma of the fall. In the beginning, we were created and intended to live our lives under the light of God's face, just as we will at the end if we're in Christ, according to Revelation 22, verse 4. But of course, in the middle, after the fall and before the renewal of all things, we are away from God. We are out of the garden and surrounded by chaos and shadow. But the tabernacle, in a sense, represents a little embassy of the coming kingdom. It is an outpost, a place where, if we are very careful and observe a variety of protocols and procedures, we can have a legitimate experience of God. And of course, this experience, this theme, will be expanded in the building of the temple, and then will land climactically upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate tabernacle. He is the ultimate temple. He is the meeting place between God and man. And he is the portal, as it were, leading us out of this fallen, barren world and back into the fullness of God's favor and blessing. Praise the Lord. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are very early in that story, in that thread of biblical theology, but it helps us make more sense of what we're seeing when we have some understanding of where this theme will eventually go as we carry on through the pages of Scripture. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, 
Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. The instructions given here repeat almost verbatim the instructions given in Exodus 27, verses 20 to 21. Again, perhaps suggesting that the purpose behind this section is largely symbolic. We're coming back to the lamp and the showbread as we now wind things down because they collectively represent the purpose and the symbol of the tabernacle as a whole. Now, as I mentioned back in Exodus 27, when covering this material for the first time, there is some debate as to the nature of this lamp that is to be maintained. Some see it as referring to the menorah. Others understand it as referring to a smaller, simpler lamp that was kept in the outer court just in front of the tent proper that would be used to light the menorah each evening. Either way, the symbolism is likely to be the same. It represents the light of God, but also the witness of his people. Of course, this particular bit of symbolism was picked up and applied by the gospel writers to the person and work of Christ. Luke, for example, records Simeon as doing that very thing as he held and blessed the baby Jesus in the temple. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus is the light, the glory and the presence of the Lord among his people. And he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Praise the Lord. So, as we've come to expect, all these various symbols grow and grow and grow and eventually land climactically on Jesus. Thus, it was very important for this light in the tabernacle to be kept burning on a perpetual basis. And so it was to be tended by Aaron and his sons. That is to say, by the priests, as opposed to the Levites generally. The oil in the lamp was to be of the highest quality, the sort of oil that was normally reserved for cooking. Beaten and strained olives, as opposed to ground olives, produced a cleaner burning oil that produced a brighter light and less smoke. Verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly, it is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. The bread of the presence, or the showbread as it's sometimes called, was first introduced back in Exodus 25 verse 30, but very little was said about it there. So we have some additional details given here. The symbol itself is not terribly hard to decipher. The 12 loaves, of course, stand for the 12 tribes of Israel. The bread is typically a symbol of God's provision. So we infer here that the 12 loaves of bread are positioned here as a sign of God's intention to bless and provide for his covenant people. Remember, the tabernacle is a little recreation outpost, 
So we expect to see some echoes of the original creation narrative. In the beginning, God created all things very good. The earth was teeming with life, and the man and the woman were blessed with an abundance of good food to eat. They could eat from any tree in the garden except that one tree that God had forbidden them. But then after the fall, securing enough food was going to be quite a challenge. By the sweat of his brow, man would bring forth food from the earth. So this bread, placed as it is here, so close to the lamp and so close to the Holy of Holies. Remember, the tabernacle had three zones. These are, in descending order of holiness, the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, and the Court. The table for the showbread was located in zone two, the Holy Place. So this is very near to God. That's the point. This is a way of saying that God will see you. He will keep your needs close to heart. He will bless you and cause you to prosper as you walk near to him and attend to his will and his word. That's the idea here. And it helps us understand the logic in the arrangement of this chapter in terms of the short story that is told next. Verse 10. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. So it would seem that this story is placed here in part probably because it happened here. The incident of blasphemy probably took place shortly after Moses had given the instructions about the lampstand and the bread of the presence. But it didn't have to be told here. It didn't have to be told at all. The fact that it is told and the fact that it is told here suggests some sort of symbolism that we're supposed to pick up on. Probably the symbolism has to do with the typical pairing of blessing and cursing motifs. So, as is often the case, the people are reminded that two roads lie open before them. The road of blessing and the road of cursing. You can draw near to God, attend to his word, and prosper in that way. Or you can despise the Lord. You can blaspheme his name and take the road that leads to judgment and death. Your choice. That is Hebrew wisdom in a nutshell. That's Psalm 1. That's Deuteronomy 27 and 28. That's one of the main shapes and contours of the Old Testament presentation. So that's probably why this story is told here. It illustrates very graphically what happens to those who despise God's name and reject his rules and commandments. Also, just as a bit of a historical aside, this is one of the very rare incidents of incarceration in the Old Testament literature. Generally speaking, civil, moral, and ritual violations are handled in terms of fines, purification rituals, or in extreme cases, capital punishment. Israel didn't have jails. They were at this point a nomadic people. But in this instance, they weren't sure what the correct punishment would be. So they held the man in custody until Moses could secure a verdict from the Lord. Verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. The verdict from God is that blasphemy is to be punishable by death. The witnesses must lay their hands on his head. 
presumably to validate their testimony, and then the congregation as a whole should stone him. Now, two things should be said here by way of assistance to the modern-day reader. The first is that, as a general rule, execution becomes excommunication as we move from Old Testament to New. So in 1 Corinthians 5, in the case of the man committing incest, Paul doesn't say, when you are assembled, lay hands on the man and stone him. He calls for excommunication, not execution. And that is because in the Old Testament, the church and the nation were one and the same. But in the New Testament, the church exists inside every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. And so the Christian now is called upon to operate within the authority and legal structures associated with whatever secular state he or she finds him or herself living within, as per Romans 13. Secondly, we would also want to remember that in general, the theocratic state of Israel is a type not of the modern Christian state, if indeed there is such a thing, but rather of the coming kingdom of God. And so we would want to say that, of course, just as blasphemers were excluded from the kingdom of Israel, so shall they be from the eternal kingdom of God. The justice meted out here is thus provisional and prophetic. It points forward to the final judgment that will precede the full consummation of the kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth. But back to our story. This individual has cursed God. Witnesses have testified, a verdict has been handed down, and a sentence carried out. And that provides the occasion for some other offenses to be detailed, along with the appropriate penalties to be imposed. We begin to hear about that in verse 15. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. R.K. Harrison says something interesting here with respect to the punishment applied to the sojourner as well as to the native. He says, The sentence does not differentiate between native Israelite and foreigner. For whoever among the populace is guilty of blasphemy bears his own punishment. Those who enjoy covenant blessings must be careful not to repudiate the author of the covenant in any way. Close quote. That's a good word. If you're going to enjoy the blessings of the Lord, then you ought to be very careful about your religious and spiritual obligations. Now, I realize those aren't popular words per se, religious and spiritual obligations, but perhaps we need some more robust terminology. Nowadays, we love to speak about our relationship to God, and yet we want to define that relationship irrespective of what the Bible says about God and about the obligations and parameters of any relationship with him. But here we're being reminded that God doesn't like ingratitude. If you're going to receive from his hand, then there better be worship coming out of your mouth. You can't enjoy on one hand and curse on the other. That sort of relationship is not on the table. Thanks be to God. Verse 17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. 
So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. We see again here the principle of lex talionis, which means tooth for tooth. It means technically the law of the tooth. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is the idea of proportionate justice. It was meant to keep blood feuds and vendettas from getting out of control. Proportionate justice is a feature of Old Testament law. And as Bible readers know, Jesus called on his disciples to personally forego it. If someone slaps you on the cheek, follower of Jesus, well, turn to him the other also. Jesus said that not because he didn't care about justice. Jesus knew very well that there would be a final judgment and that no one would get away with anything. And Jesus spoke about keeping our obligation to Caesar, an aspect of which is respecting his right to bear the sword. So the state will exact punishment and God at the final judgment will exact punishment. And therefore, Christ's followers can be people of grace and mercy. We don't need to obsess over personal justice. We need to extend to people, to even our enemies, the message of grace and forgiveness. That's our job. The king does not bear the sword in vain, and the Lord will avenge every wrong, Romans 12, 9. Therefore, you and I can bless those who persecute us and pray for those who hate us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.